chapter 3. If you're new to Meadowbrook, we're in a book series through Nehemiah uh, by chapter and verse. And uh, Nehemiah may not have been one of those books you've gone to recently, so you're wondering now, where is that one? (laughs) If you can find Psalms, hang a left, and uh, just a few books over, you'll find Nehemiah. Zoom in with me to chapter 3. I want to go back and pick up in the context the end of chapter 2. Because as you know, Nehemiah has recognized that Jerusalem is in trouble. The exiles who have survived there, those who have returned, are finding themselves in desperate need of help. And Nehemiah has gone to challenge them, asking them to, to do something about uh, what the destruction uh, is around them and to rebuild the walls and, and put the city back into order. And so in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision, no longer suffer shame, rebuke, reproach, uh, the, the laughter of the enemy scoffing around us. And I told them the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah has um, challenged the folks. He has done it in a way that they see the problem themselves and see themselves as being God's solution to the issue and that Trusting that if God's good hand had been on Nehemiah to bring about this, that his hand would be upon them too. So in that word, they strengthened their hands. They believed the word of God, which he had declared 70 years after exile, he would bring them back to the city. They believed his word, his, his, his grace and his mercy, and that strengthened their hands. But against them was Samballot, Tobiah, and Geshem, those, those enemies of the people who jeered and despised them for the work that they were attempting to accomplish. They had a vision that God had given them, and these men were trying to dissuade them from that vision. And it reminds us in the narrative that wherever you have the genuine work of God, you also have enemies who come against God's good work. This is the reality that you and I live in. Uh, we are soldiers of the kingdom of God, bearing forth the light for good. We are marching and advancing God's kingdom. We ought to know the enemy of God is coming against us and is against us. But you and I, don't have to fight for victory. The victory belongs to Jesus Christ, the great victor. And he has given that victory to us. So there's nothing about what you and I are doing that we are attempting to work to gain victory. All the victory is given to us in Christ by his death and his resurrection, his ascension. He sovereignly sits at the right hand of God the Father. So in Christ we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We have freedom from the power of sin that once enchained us. We have spiritual authority, which Christ tells us to, to uh, ex- extend. We have glorious victory, and we have eternal life. I'm reminding people constantly of that, those truths, uh, particularly those that know that they are soon approaching the end of their days here. I remind them of the great victory, my friend. 
to be absent in this body in its diseased state to be absent in that body is to be present in Christ Jesus and one day the Lord is going to resurrect this broken body and he is going to make it absolutely glorious just like he himself is however the devil and his horde persist against God's kingdom though they are defeated they attempt to thwart the mission of the church that God has given to us, which is to extend his mercy and grace, his gospel message to people all over the world who are still enslaved to sin and are on a destination for hell, eternally separated from God. But God tells us to stand victoriously and march forward. The church cannot be stopped. In fact, that's the words of Jesus himself that said in uh, Matthew 16, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, all the enemy of the horde of hell that comes against us, they will not conquer the church or the mission that God has given to the church. We will be victorious because Christ himself is victorious. So the kingdom and the mission of God simply cannot be stopped. Now they are standing in front of Nehemiah and all the people of God in Jerusalem, Samballat, Tobiah, Geshem, stood in opposition to rebuilding and renewing the city and the walls. So Nehemiah stands his ground and he says to them directly, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. You have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. You, you hear the definitive nature by which Nehemiah is speaking against those who are coming against him. And he's doing so with fortitude and a real tenacity because he believes and trusts in God and his word. The provision of God would be enough. He would accomplish as he had set out to do. Now from there we turn the page into chapter 3. It's sort of the background. Now you know it again. It's refreshed in your mind. In chapter 3 we're suddenly on a construction site. Uh, with no transitional statement, it's just, wow, you're there at the construction site. We're all putting our Jewish hard hats on today, and we're going to go back to the place um, where the rebuilding was taking place. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then Elishab, uh, Shib, excuse me, the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to him, Zachar, the son of Imri built. And the sons of Hasenah built the fish gate. And they laid its beams and its doors and its bolts and its bars. And next to him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Mishael repaired. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Baanab repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But the nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. And on and on and on the list goes for 32 verses with 50 some odd names and people groups. And the summation of that is just simply this, the kingdom in the kingdom of God, God calls every citizen to work. In God's kingdom, every citizen is called to work. Someone sent me a text last week as they were reading in, a, in advance of this message. And uh, they were sort of ribbing me, chuckling the fact that we had 
all these names and all these positions on the wall. And I don't mind telling you, it's a little bit of a bore to read through names. When you get to begot, 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 you know what I do. One, two, skip a few, right? <laughs> and you just kind of read through those very quickly sometimes. Uh, and it, we might be tempted to do that. I'm not going to read all 32 verses today. You see, I just struggle with five. Why would I read 32? I'm smarter than that. But anyway, Nehemiah is telling us who it is that is building certain sections of the wall till the totality of the wall is complete. And you might think, well, this is not my favorite passage to, to read in my devotional times with the Lord. But I can tell you there is great significant truth that we can dial into in this, in this passage. Now, the image behind me on the screen is going to depict Jerusalem in the day of Nehemiah as one would envision it to be with its walls and its gates as they were reconstructed. Uh, it's been a long time since I've held a laser pen in my hand, but I'm going to go old school on you to the 1990s and I'm going to pull my laser. Uh, this, of course, is all the wall that they were rebuilding. In fact, when Nehemiah got on his, on his beast, the donkey, whatever the horse that he was riding, uh, he, he actually had to get off right here and he had to walk this whole area. It was so, so full of rubble in that area, his animal could not even walk in that area. He's having to get off and kind of lead it around because it was just such in disrepair, broken. Uh, if, you're, if you're insightful to this period of, of history in Jerusalem, you'll know this is the temple mount itself in that day. And the gate that we're talking about, the priest rebuilding, is right there. That's the sheep gate. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And then, of course, these homes. This will really be where uh, the most popular and favored, the nobles, the, the ones with money, would be closest to the temple itself. Uh, the city of David is this lower section. In fact, David's home 500 years before would have been in that area right there. So you kind of get a visual of what's, what's going on as he's telling them to reconstruct, to rise up. And, and they're saying, yes, let's rise up and do this. Now you can see that that would be a pretty extensive project if you were going to take the citizens of that area and rebuild the wall and its gates and its towers. This is a big deal. And I think that's the reason why Nehemiah gives us all the details that he does in chapter 3. He wants us to get a just a sense of how big the project is and how many people are involved. In, in fact, when you, when you hear a name involved like Zadok or somebody like that, it's not just him. He's leading that portion of that wall with others who have joined him. Uh, he would be the one who is leading that. It's not just that he's the one doing it, but that others are joining him in that effort for that section. So I think what Nehemiah would, would say to us in our modern-day colloquial phrase, he would say, hey, it's an all-hands-on-deck project. This requires everybody. It's, it's not that this is just for the few. It's not this is for the working class. This is for everybody to engage. And why is that the case? Because they are suffering derision. This isn't a project. Somebody was asking me about the uh, parking project that we want to start. And uh, yes, we want to start that. We're having a little sluggish time with the civil engineers who are very busy right now. Uh, but now we have one engaged and they're working on that. It's not like that, like it's just going to be helpful to us have a, to have another parking lot. No, this is derision. The name of God is being scoffed at because the name of God which rests on that city, has been placed on that city, 
is equal to all of that brokenness of its people. So this is a big deal, and Nehemiah wants us to know that. So the fact that they actually do it, and do it in 52 days, is remarkable. Actually, what's most remarkable is the way they accomplished it. They accomplished it in faith. Anybody can build a wall, but in faith, not everybody builds a wall. These people were building the wall in faith, trusting God's word, trusting his provision, trusting his security. They believed that this is what God would have them to do. So in faith, they build the wall. Can I just remind us what the New Testament says? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So when you lead your life group or you're singing in the choir or you're greeting or you're outdoors doing something or you're down in the, the dining hall or you're with the D-Now students uh, throughout the weekend, whatever it is, if you're not doing it in faith, you're just doing a task. But when you do it in faith, my friends, what a remarkable feat that is to the glory of God and, and to the expression of that to other, peop uh, to other people. So here's all these folks who are practicing love for one another, trusting in God with confidence and strength and provision. And we get this sense that when the spirit-filled people are united in the purposes of God, they can achieve wondrous, wondrous accomplishments. That's part of what the church is all about. It's the church gathering, the ecclesia, the gathering of the saints to do what God has faithfully called them to do. Empowered us to do, championed us to do, e equipped, strengthened, instructed, all those things God has called us to do. When we do it and we do it together, it is quite an accomplishment to the glory of God. Now from there, we, we turn into uh, this, this notion that the world... The world really holds up individualism, pushes individualism, but the kingdom of God is always promoting community. The world wants it to be about you, and in the kingdom of God, God wants it to be about us, his body, the body of Christ. This is an all-hands-on-deck moment in time in history and this church is a church that believes that every member has come by the assignment of the Holy Spirit to do the work of ministry. I'm going to be leading that lunch today, and I'm going to be sharing with 20, 30, ever how many new folks show up who, who are engaged in this membership process. And I'm going to champion them to say, at Meadowbrook, we believe, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that the Spirit of God is bringing individuals to form this body, to build up, the biblical word there is to edify, to build up this body. In fact, we believe that unless you're obedient to the response of the Spirit at this church or at some other church, wherever he's calling you to, unless you're obedient, we will be less effective. But if you're obedient and you come in and you connect to the body, not just attend, you connect to the body with purpose to do and accomplish through the manifestation of the Spirit of God, that is the revealed Spirit of God working through you, then it will be a wondrous work. Everybody has a place. Listen, nobody in here has been saved to sit. Everybody in here has been saved to serve. That's Nehemiah's idea. 
that everyone, a greeter, a discipler, a servant, a singer, a prayer warrior, an evangelist, everybody is an all-hands-on-deck kind of person joining together for the efforts of God's glorious good news. So God calls for all of us to join his work. And then secondly, God calls for Christian leaders to lead with servant-heartedness. So Elisheb, the uh, high priest, he gathers up the other priest, and they begin to start building that sheep gate, which I pointed out to you. Then they consecrated its doors, they set them and consecrated them. In fact, they consecrated all the way to the Tower of the Hundred and then the Tower of Hanael. Uh, the, the Tower of Hundred is right there. It says on this screen, the Tower of Mia, but that's the word for hundred. And here's the Tower of Hanael. And so they have worked on the gate and then others, men from Jericho, uh, men who have come alongside them and helped them begin to build the other portions of the towers and such. And they consecrate it. Now, some people have a natural bent towards leadership. They, they're just naturally fit to be a leader. It's the way God has made them. They have charisma and effective communication, appearance, poise, uh, strength to stand before others or drive about them. But humility is an essential characteristic of a Christian leader. There's a lot of leaders in the world, but a Christian leader has to have humility. In fact, we mentioned last week that Nehemiah demonstrated his humility by being a man of prayer. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to accomplish this. I can, I can pull this off. No, he, he spent months in prayer. Uh, and when he was engaged, he, he spent nights in prayer. Uh, particularly three days when he arrives before he does anything. So there's a sense of humility about him. In today's passage, we see the genuine leadership of this high priest and his fellow priest who are mentioned first to rise up and begin to build. They begin to build the wall, begin to build the gates. So no doubt they take off their priestly garb and they put on the attire of masons and labormen and they begin to do the work. Picking up rocks, taking hammer chisel, uh, getting things in position. So clearly, it would be rare to see a priest doing manual labor. You say, well, it's rare to see a preacher to do manual labor. I get it. Okay. <laughs> it's because the priests are meant to do very specific duties. And that is to help engage in the worship of God. They're offering sacrifices. They're caring for the temple. They're, they're caring as God has instructed them to for all the things of the worship to take place. It's rare for you to see a priest at all. I can't remember another time that I have seen priests in wholesale like this putting on the work clothes and doing manual labor. But here's, here's some guys who recognize it's our responsibility to do it first, to lead out. That's a servant-hearted leader. I'm taking a little bit of liberty here, and I hope that you'll forgive me more than that. I hope the Lord will. But I think these guys are inexperienced masons. I don't think anybody said, uh, oh, if you're going to be a priest, you've got to learn how to be a, a mason. You've got to be, be able to build a wall, put a gate back in place. You've got to get the hinges straight. Can you do all that? <laughs> That's not in the, in the job description of most priests. So I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm guessing that they are not experienced in this. 
And such work was not necessary for them on a regular basis, but they were to lead out. And here's this, catch this. I believe that when you lead out in that way with that kind of servant heartedness, that God will give you the means to accomplish what he's called you to do. You say, well, that's not my wheelhouse. Okay, is it God's? That's not my strength. Okay, is it God's? Because God's spirit can manifest. He can reveal himself through us. You said, would he do that? Oh, yeah, it's called spiritual gifts. And here's what the Bible says. Everybody, everybody in Christ has spiritual gifts. At least one. And so there's a way in which you can serve. Now, as a pastor, now 30 years, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to see the congregation and have a need in the congregation and, and even be a leader who needs to start in that direction, not have the skill, not have the ability, and be humble enough, not always, but humble enough to get on my knees and say, Lord, will you give me that gift? Will you give me that provision? Will you give me that opportunity and let me exercise in faith that you will? I think that he would do that not just for a pastor who gets on his knees, but any of us where you just say, Lord, I see a need. And unless you have somebody else that's going to do that, will you give me the ability to step out in faith and do that? I think that's the idea that the priest and the others who were gathered around to build that sheep gate came with this notion, Lord, it's our responsibility to start the way. Give us the means. Give us the provision. Give us the strength. Give us the, the ability to do this. And, and they did. What a, what a wonderful way of seeing how the church life is for today. So the priests built the gate, and they built the sheep gate. And that makes sense because that is essential for their ministry and the people's worship. That's where the animals were brought in. It's directly connected in the temple itself. And so that would be a gate that they would repair and then consecrate it. Anybody consecrate anything today? That's not a word that we often use, but it means it's, it's set apart for holy use. Uh, it's, it's not what, you don't bring your Walmart bags through this door. This door is holy. You bring the sheep and the animals for sacrifice through this door. It's, it's consecrated to the Lord. And then they consecrate the rest of it. So it's not just that that gate is consecrated alone, but they're also consecrating the next tower and the next tower. And I think what he's saying there is they're consecrating it all the way to the end where the work began, all the way to that corner. My guess is when it's over, the whole thing is dedicated to the Lord, consecrated wholly unto the Lord. And that's the way we ought to see our ministries. Now look, you might not think of it this way, but if you're in the choir, you ought to be thinking, I want to consecrate my voice to the Lord today. This is not just about singing songs. This is about worshiping with consecrated voices and hearts to the Lord. And if you're a, a greeter with the title greeter, then your greeting is not just to say hello and welcome to people, but your greeting is to be consecrated to the Lord. Lord, I pray this many times, Lord, help me today to touch somebody who needs to know your love. Help me today to speak and hug some widow who has not been hugged in the last seven days. Help me, Lord, to know who to say, 
I love you. Help me to do that. That's consecrating. By the way, I said title is greeter because everybody in this building is a greeter. Everybody. Uh, one of the things that I hear over and over is that that church loves when people come. They greet us. They love on us. They, they welcome us. Boy, if, if you're here today and you didn't get that, I'm sorry. Uh, it's our intention that every person in this room is a greeter. You know what I'll say to the new folks today? You are the best greeters for this church because you know how awkward it is when you come to a new church. You're the best ones. Go after those folks. Love on them. They've got a inquisitive look on their face. Introduce yourself. I've introduced myself to somebody and they said, I've been going here five years. <laughs> well, you hadn't been going very long. Like you hadn't been here in the last four years or three years or whatever it is. You might come on, on some given day, but you're not here often enough. Anyway, If you're going to give, if you're going to serve, whatever it is, consecrate it to the Lord. Don't see it as a task. Don't see it as a job, as something you do. See it as holy to the Lord. That's in faith. I may not be the best teacher, but I can tell you this. What I'm doing is consecrated to the Lord. I may not be the best singer on that front row, but I tell you this. I'm consecrating my voice to the Lord when I sing. I'm singing to him. And I'm singing in a way that the people behind me and beside me and in front of me know that I mean what I'm singing. Why? Because I've consecrated it to the Lord. Everybody in this room ought to have that kind of attitude. That's what the priests did. They were servant-hearted in that way. All right, let's move on to that next one. God calls every Christian to kingdom ministry. And I want you to hear this part, without exception. Without exception, rebuilding walls, gates, towers, that's a monumental task, no doubt. It requires everybody to participate. So Nehemiah names a bunch of them. And he also is naming people that uh, not by name, but just by, by groups, rulers and leaders, politicians, Levites, merchants, goldsmiths. Now catch this, perfume makers. Perfume makers? <laughs> Who wants to be, be living near the wall where the perfume makers have been rebuilding it? But no doubt, God gave the perfume makers the opportunity and the ability to do just that, to make and build those walls. And then he mentions people who are living not just in Jerusalem, but outside of Jerusalem, like from Jericho and Zenoa and Gibeon and Beth Karim and Beth Zur. And just other places where they're coming to build the wall of Jerusalem. And you say, well, somebody might argue, well, it really doesn't matter to me that Jerusalem has security. I don't even live in Jerusalem. I live outside of Jerusalem. But they didn't see it that way. They didn't see this as a security issue. They saw this as a holy place unto the Lord where God's name had been placed and associated for all the world to know this is the place where you worship Yahweh. And because of that, they came from all around to help rebuild the walls. It was a place of worship, a place of sacrifice, a place where atonement for sin was made. And so certainly they wanted to be a part of that. And so the people are working and building the wall in a unified effort to accomplish a greater than them goal. In other words, this was not about them individually. This wasn't even about them generationally. This was about something much bigger. Now, Meadowbrook, 
we will do well for generations to come if we have that kind of mindset. What we do is not for us. What we do is unto the glory of Christ and often is intended for future generations. They will not know us by name. There's not a registry somewhere where they're going to go to and say, oh, let me see who those people were in 2024. They're not going to do that. All they're going to know is God called some people in 2024 and those people were faithful. That's the group we want to be part of. Something bigger than us individually, something that glorifies God extensively and that people give him praise and rejoice in him. So our individual work and service must be viewed as greater than us. It's a work of the mission and the, the mission is of the body of Christ. Our, our work is not given to us. We're not commissioned individually. We are, but collectively is what God is viewing here. It's a collective call made up of individual members. So each of us is called to serve. You can note this in the handout. God's Spirit gives us specific opportunities that are connected to a larger, spectacularly beautiful mosaic of mission and purpose. So sometimes we get this real narrow view of this little piece, what God has called us to. And it's, it's uh, not easy for us to look around uh, at other pieces and how they connect. What if there's a grander mosaic of this universal church? What I mean by that is the extensive church of Jesus Christ around the world. I'm not talking about universalism. I'm talking about God's extending reach of his body all around the world. Sometimes we have a hard time seeing that mosaic of God for mission and purpose because we're just one little bitty piece of the mosaic art. One time Kay and I and some others were in Israel and we were just looking around at all this, this remarkable archaeological discovery that was demonstrating for us what we have been reading in the Bible. And among the dirt and the dust and little rocks and stuff around, Kay reaches down and she picks up a little square, not even as big as a stamp. And she asks the guide, what is this? It's obviously not just a rock. What is this? He said, oh, that's, that's a piece of the mosaic floor. And I'm like, Kay, we are not going to get arrested from the antiquities <laughs> department of, the, of Israel. What are you doing? Put that back. He said, oh, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. It's just in the, in the dirt. Now, if you see something connected, don't pull it off. But if it's just around in the, in the dirt, whatever, yeah, you can put that in your pocket. So I made sure it was in her luggage when we left. <laughs> uh, take one for the team there, girl. That one little piece some point in history back was part of a beautiful design on a floor. The image that's coming to the screen is 13 by 24. It's a mosaic that's absolutely huge. It's priceless. It's over 2,000 years old. It was discovered by a man who did exactly what Kay had done. He was part of a road construction crew, and they were extending the road in Tel Aviv. And he happened to look down and he saw something different on the ground. And when they pulled that part away, he realized this is, this is elongated. And when they pull the whole thing back, of course, the project stops. 
They pull the whole thing back, and it is a priceless mosaic. He had seen a portion of the tail of the tiger. I'm only showing you a small portion of the mosaic. Here's what I want us to see in that visual. Jesus Christ has made it so that every one of us, individual pieces, fit beautifully and perfectly in the mosaic of his call for mercy and grace and purpose to be extended around the world. You may see only your little piece and you say, well, I'm not very purposeful, but I can tell you in the beauty of Christ and his call for us to be engaged in his purposes, you are absolutely essential for that mosaic to be in full and whole in a way that is glorifying to him. You have purpose. In fact, I would say if you're discounting your purpose, you are discounting the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, and the will of God for his church. Don't do that. Engage in the way that God has called you to engage. So don't discount your abilities. My friends, the more we work and serve and minister alongside of one another, the more unified we will be. You know who my, my closest people are in relationship in this church? The people I serve with. The people I'm side by side with. Those of you who are working over at Way of the Cross, you're, you're probably close to those you're working with because you're serving and you're, you're gaining unity in that service. If you're on a mission field, on a mission project, and you're, you're there among the, the other missionaries from our church, you grow close to them. If you're in a life group and you're serving, you're loving one another, you're encouraging one another, you're weeping with those who weep, and you're, you're rejoicing with those who rejoice. You're growing close because you're serving together. And so everybody has a place of service, and the service shows the unity and love that God wants to be on, demonstrate, on demonstration. Listen, we are known by our love for one another. If we're genuinely disciples, we'll be known in that way, and you express that in your service together. The Apostle Paul mentioned it this way over in Ephesians chapter 4. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So here's servant-minded leaders that God has called to equip saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And look at this. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the full stature, stature of God. So he's saying that when you're equipped and when you serve, we want to do it in a way that we are all unified. We grow more in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We grow to greater maturity in our work. He says it again over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are various uh, varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You, you hear all that? The same, the same, the same for the commonality. It, that's what God is doing. He is working in us individually to unite us in his purposes and for the good of the world and the glory of Christ. So among all the heroes of Nehemiah 3, those who work together to accomplish a tremendous goal, 
there's one group of people that's identified among the 50 that are mentioned who are actually not even joining the effort. It's in chapter 3, verse 5. Next to them, talking about Zadok, the Tekoites, they were building. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. It seems that the nobles of Tekoa were stuffy men, just arrogant, prideful, pouty, because God had brought a new kid in town, Nehemiah, in order to help rebuild the city and the walls and the brokenness. The Lord was doing something new in their midst, but here's these men who were not wanting to do, have anything to do with it. Nehemiah had led them humbly and in a servant-hearted way. You'll not hear Nehemiah's name one time in the accomplishment of chapter 3. He, he's diverting all that attention to everybody else. He doesn't even mention himself what he was doing. I tell you what he was doing. He was serving. He was helping. He was guiding. He was leading. But he doesn't mention himself. He's about as humble as you get. I think why this group is mentioned is because we just need to recognize while we are championing each other to do the work that God has instructed us to do, and while we are overwhelmingly pleased with everybody who is doing the work of ministry here at Meadowbrook and beyond, we should also expect that there are sideliners who are wanting to dissuade and denounce the work of Jesus Christ. There's always the naysayer out there. Some people would rather have brokenness than embrace hope and change and opportunity. Early in my minister, ministry, one uh, well-established older gentleman took me aside and he was saying to me, now look, Randy, there are times that there are going to be people like that in your ministry. And you're going to wonder, how do, I, how do I work them? How do I work to move them? And, and you ought to be doing that. You ought to be praying for them. You ought to be encouraging them. You ought to be trying to help move them along the way, build relationship with them. But there comes a time when you've got to ask a question and the farmer asks the question as he takes off his hat and scratches his head, do I want to keep working on this stump? And at some point, the farmer recognizes, nope, what I need to do is plow around him. I just need to go right around that stump. I'll be much more effective, much more fruitful if I just go right around him. We do recognize that not everybody who comes into the church in the proximity of the church, not everybody is saved. There are some who come to the church, hang out with the church, look like the church, sound like the church, but they are commissioned by the devil. Jesus said it would be like planting weeds among the wheat. And you can't tell them apart. I tell you how I can tell them apart. They are fruitless. They bear forth no spiritual fruit whatsoever, nothing of eternal value. And they typically give themselves away by always nagging, always complaining, always pointing out something. You know, you read it on Facebook all the time. They have a bad meal. They want everybody in the world to know it. Give me a break. We don't care what you had for lunch. <laughs> so your server didn't treat you well. Your server's making $7 an hour plus tips, struggling. Why are you focusing on your server? If you are genuinely saved, genuinely recognizing the commission that God has given you to make an impact in that man or woman's life, 
You would be sharing love with her. Stop waiting to be served, but you be the servant. That's what Jesus does. Now, if you have posted something about your meal in the last few weeks, I have not read it. <laughs> I, I rarely get on social media, uh, so I have not read it. I'm not pinpointing you, but boy, if given the opportunity, I get my laser out and I do just that. <laughs> You're not going to change some people, are you? You're just going to have to work around them. Some people like being grumpy. They're not pleased unless their lips are pursed. You know who I'm talking about? They're only delighted when there is drama. So don't focus on them. Keep your eyes on the author and the finisher of your faith. Keep running the race that is before you. Keep straining ahead for that which God has called to you, the upper prize of God in Christ Jesus. Keep your focus where it ought to be. And Nehemiah only just mentioned these guys. What I love about it, he says, all the people, the Tekoites, they kept working, regardless of what their nobles were doing. They just kept working. And that's what you and I ought to be doing. The saved want to serve. The saved are eager to serve. You know why? Because their Savior was a servant. Still is. So the saved look forward to serve. I love the way Jesus showed us how we live our life in servitude. Philippians 3 excuse me, 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Wow, what convicting words those are. And a culture that surrounds us that would say the very opposite of this, what conviction this brings to our heart. Our prayer just simply ought to be, Lord, forgive me, and Lord, make me more like Jesus. Please. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As Christ has demonstrated what humble servitude is like, giving himself totally, so you and I should live in the same vein. That we would have the same attitude, the same heart, the, the same engaging way being willing to take the second, the third, the fourth seat in order for somebody else to be lifted up to the first. Probably nowhere is this more profoundly demonstrated than at the ends of the Gospels. Where Jesus is moving to the cross of Calvary, the ultimate glory, where the Son of God would be suspended between heaven and hell. The Holy One from heaven who came to dwell among sinners, now suspended in between, becoming the mediator, the bridge between heaven and earth and earth and heaven. And there bearing all of our judgment for sin, the conviction of God that is upon us now placed upon him 
as he bears our sin, the full wrath of God being exercised against him, bearing forth the punishment that was due us in order that he might serve us and give us forgiveness and credit to us righteousness. And on the night before that happened, the very night of his arrest, Jesus is eating with his disciples. And at the portion of the meal where the redemptive cup is going to be demonstrated, where he talks about God extending redemption with outstretched arms, as he's referring back to Exodus, there Jesus stands and he takes off his outer clothing and he wraps himself in a towel and he begins to wash the disciples' feet with a basin of water. And as he washes their feet, he says to them that they too ought to wash one another's feet. For he says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you as example that you should do just, to do just as I have done to you. Truly, I say to you, listen, the servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you who do them. If you see the way in which I serve you and I call you to serve in this way, blessed are you who serve to that level. In the seats down below, for most of you, there are cups that have both the unleavened bread and the juice for which we will sharing communion together. It will be a moment where we'll look back to the point where Christ was demonstrating this kind of blessedness to us, where he would become the suffering servant. He would endure our sin and shame on the cross in God's holy wrath. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank. You see what's happening here? The master who has washed their feet is now serving them bread and wine. He's demonstrating servitude. He's demonstrating humility and service. The very things that he's giving to them, the unleavened bread, represents his sinless state. His body that would be broken for them. The cup that he's sharing with them and he's serving to them has the wine which represents the blood of the covenant which he himself will shed for them and for us. The one who would do that is serving it to them, and he's calling their attention to it. And he gave it to them, and they all drank, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So we hold the elements of communion as a way of looking back for what Christ has done. It's a way of reflecting in this moment what this means to us individually, personally, but it's also our collective call as the body of Christ to be servants as Christ has served. And we hold these, take these with anticipation of his coming again.
So, Father, we thank you for the moment for which we have come where we can reflect in remembrance of Christ and we can remember what you have called us and empowered us to do in various ways, pieces of a grand mosaic that is yet to be understood but certainly will be glorious, powerful. We thank you for Jesus and his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. We thank you for all that it has accomplished in our salvation, the salvation of your church, and the salvation for those who will hear and receive. We bless you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Taking that into us is our way of saying, Lord, let me be as you are, a servant. Let me be on mission for the will and the purposes of the Father. Let me be empowered by your Spirit. I give myself in that way. It's not just something we do in tradition. It is something that calls us to the expression of life of the gospel.